So I want to start out this morning just taking a sort of a quick poll. We'll see if you're awake. Or maybe you just won't even care about this poll. Uh, We'll see. Uh, How many of you, just raise your hand, if you enjoy superhero movies? Raise your hand if you enjoy superhero movies. All right, quite a few. Quite quite a few of you. All right, so for those of you who didn't raise your hand, you're out. Um, (laughs) So don't... Don't contaminate my poll by, by answering these next few questions. How many of you, for those who said yes, how many of you prefer Marvel movies? Okay. How many of you prefer DC? Poor DC. <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> wow. Okay, so Marvel wins that one hands down. Okay, so the next question is not going to be a show of hands. This is, the next one's going to be a little chaotic. It's going to be a shout out the answer, okay? And uh, so the question is this. If you were forced to choose just one superhero, who's your favorite? So it's going to be on three. Ready? You've got three seconds to figure it out. Ready? One, two, three, go. Okay, I heard, Bleh! that's awesome. Okay. That is my favorite superhero, too. <laughs> um, so I have, um, I have uh, a couple of favorite superheroes, so I'm already going to break the rules because I told you one. I have two. All right, so my first favorite superhero, and probably my, my real favorite, is Superman. Um, sorry, all you Marvel people. Yay. Yeah, see, that's DC. So he knows his stuff over there. So... Clearly, DC is better because I like Superman. So, Superman I like, and and, and I like these two superheroes for different reasons, but Superman is my favorite because, duh, he's Superman, right? I mean, like, Superman is almost invincible, right? I mean, there's not much that can stop Superman. Although my, my, my son pointed out that Doctor Strange can just reverse time and and, and Superman is good. I lost again and again and again and again until I win, right? So, okay, but Superman is pretty powerful and he's pretty awesome. But my other favorite is, is Batman. And the reason why I like Batman is, is different. The reason I like Batman is because Batman is actually just a regular guy, right? He's just a regular guy who has really cool gadgets, he has really cool toys. He has really cool cars. That would be awesome to have a Batmobile, right? So the thing about a guy like Batman, for me anyway, is that when I, when I watch you know, what he does, I think, you know, that technically could be me. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, I'm honestly just a few cool gadgets and a cool car away from being a superhero, you know? And so, so I kind of like, I kind of like Batman for that reason. Uh, but for the record, I, d- I had to put this in here that, that technically Batman also defeated Superman. Uh, if you've seen the movie Dawn of Justice, um, so there's that as well. Um, but today, fake news. I heard that. <laughs> so, right, and because it's not believable, right? It's not really believable. Like Batman could really beat Superman. It's kind of silly, but. For the next few Sundays, we're going to be taking a closer look at one of my biblical heroes of the faith, one of my my sort of all-time favorites in the scripture, and that is Elijah the prophet. 
See, for me, Elijah stands out, you know, on the pages of Scripture as one of the most remarkable people to have ever lived. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that that God did all kinds of really cool miracles through Elijah, right? And we're going to be looking at several of those over the next few weeks. But you may also recall that Elijah is unique in that he never experienced death. It's pretty cool. I mean, not many people can say that. When the Lord was ready to take Elijah home to heaven, God sent horses and chariots of fire down to earth and takes Elijah up in a whirlwind, right? And Elisha's standing there watching the whole thing like, whoa, this is not like a movie. This is really happening, right? Pretty, pretty remarkable exit from the earth. And then there's a story in, in Luke chapter 9 where, you know, over 800 years after going up in a whirlwind, 800 years later, Elijah joins Jesus and a couple of his close followers on a mountain, and you've got Moses and Elijah standing there talking to Jesus about his soon departure. Like, that's just so cool, right? I mean, like, we don't know what they were saying, but it must have been so, I mean, can you imagine being there and hearing like, hey, so we heard it's almost time for you to come to heaven, you know, like, are you scared? Are you nervous? I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the conversation was like, but this is a very cool scene happening right before Peter, James, and John. And we could go on and we could talk about Elijah and his connection to the, his connection to the coming of the Messiah and, and all of that. But here's the thing I really want to emphasize. Here's what I want to, to point out. When we talk about Elijah the prophet, it is easy for us to get this sort of larger-than-life sort of view of this man, right? It's easy for us to place him sort of up on a pedestal, right? And we can begin to look at Elijah like, and, and other people in, in, the, in the scriptures, but we can look at them like there's these people like Elijah over here, like, wow, and then there's, you know, the rest of us down here somewhere, right? It's easy to begin to look at them that way. And so for that reason, because there is this temptation to view Elijah that way, I want to begin our time together by reading some of, one of my, my favorite verses in the scripture. James chapter 5, verse 17. It'll be on the screen if you, if you don't have your Bible with you. But James chapter 5, verse 17, just the first half of the verse says this. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was a human, right? And I, I mean, like intellectually, I think we know that, but I think it's important to remind ourselves of that as, as we begin to read through the stories about Elijah. He had the same struggles that you and I have, right? Elijah had a sin nature just like me. You know, Elijah sinned, right? He wasn't perfect. If he was perfect, he could have made the sacrifice for our sins, right? But he wasn't. He needed a Savior just as much as we do. He was a man. And so as we begin to take a closer look at his life over the next few weeks, I want you to keep that verse right at the forefront of your minds. Elijah was a man just like us. 
just like us. Like Batman, Elijah did not have any superpowers, right? We read about the miracles of like, man, this guy had superpowers. No, he had no superpowers, but he was connected to the all-powerful God, and that is what made all the difference. Amen? Amen. If you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17. And we'll jump into the story. Chapter 17, verse 1 says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there will be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Boom. This is the very first introduction to Elijah the prophet. There's nothing else before this about Elijah. Just he shows up on the scene sort of like a, like a lightning bolt, still playing with this whole superhero thing. He shows up unannounced and he's got a bold and ominous message. The scripture really doesn't tell us anything else about, you know, Elijah's past. Other than the fact that it says here that he was a Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead. And honestly, that does not reveal too much to us, since scholars today still are not sure where Tishbe was or what a Tishbite is. It doesn't sound too pleasant, to be honest. What we do know, however, is that Elijah's name means Yahweh is my God. Yahweh is my God. And that is a name that fits perfectly with his calling and with his message. The Lord sent Yahweh is my God to Samaria to bring a message of judgment to the king of Israel because they had abandoned the worship of Yahweh, the true and living God, and they were worshiping foreign gods. When King Solomon died, in, in, you can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 11, the nation of Israel was divided into, into two kingdoms. And you can see those up on the map there. You have Judah in the south, which was made up of two tribes, uh, Judah and Benjamin. And then you had uh, Israel in the north, which was made up of the remaining ten tribes. And the northern kingdom of Israel began a, a steady decline away from the worship of Yahweh. You could actually say they entered into an all-out sprint away from the worship of Yahweh. And under King Ahab's rule, who we're introduced to in verse 1, they had embraced the worship of foreign gods like like Baal and and Asherah. In chapter 16, just just before the text that we're looking at, beginning in uh, verse 29, we're introduced to King Ahab and his wife, you've probably heard of her, Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel. I think she's more popular than than King Ahab, right? Verse 29 says, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah in the south, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to uh, reign over Israel in the north. 
And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, listen, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, remember that name, it will come up later, king of the Sidonians. And he went and he served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah, which is like a pole. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Listen, Ahab was a wicked, wicked king. He and his wife Jezebel were proactively leading the Israelites away from Yahweh and promoting the worship of Baal, who they believed, by the way, and this comes into play soon, they believed that Baal was the storm god who provided rain for their crops. So when Elijah shows up and says, hey, there will be no dew nor rain, it was a direct shot at their worship of Baal, the god of rain, right? Elijah says, as the Lord, the true God of Israel lives, Before whom I stand, there will be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. Wow. Isn't that bold? You march before this wicked king and you drop the mic, right? Boom. There it is. In James chapter 5, that that verse that we begin with, James says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. The rest of that verse says, And he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Whoa. Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain, and for three and a half years it did not rain. Now, if you're anything like me, you read something like that, and you start to think, Man, how do I experience that type of power in my own prayer life, right? And here's what I want you to see. Elijah prayed powerfully because Elijah prayed fervently and he prayed biblically. He prayed biblically. In the Torah, the Torah is is the first five books of the Bible. That's what the Jews would have referred to it as, the Torah. In the uh, first five books of the Old Testament, God warned his people not to turn aside and worship other gods. He gave them warnings about this. And one example is in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 16 and 17. This is what it says. Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. He warned him. And Elijah, 
aware of God's warnings, he prayed fervently for God's will to be fulfilled. That God's word, that he, that he warned them, if they do this, this is what's going to happen. And Elijah prayed, God, let it happen. Now, if you and I want to experience the power of God through our prayers, we need to pray fervently and we need to pray biblically. We need to pray biblically. We need to pray in accordance with his will. And we need to pray in accordance with his word. You know, prayer is, is it's not about, it's not about, you know, lining God up, you know, with our will, right? Although I think that's sometimes how we treat it. It's about aligning ourselves up with his will and with his word. We want to experience that type of power, pray, with, pray in connection with his, his will and what he's revealed in his word. And so Elijah, he, he, he delivers this, this powerful message of judgment to King Ahab. And he tells him there's going to be no rain except by the word of Elijah. And then in verse 2, it says, And the word of the Lord came to him. I love this. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You'll drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went, and he did according to the word of the Lord. He went, and he lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. God says to Elijah, thank you very much for delivering the word. Now it's time for you to move. You need to move. You need to get out of town. And it's easy to look at that, and I do. You know, I look at it and I say, wow, he's trying to protect you know, Elijah from Ahab, right? And, and there is some truth to that because we're going to discover in the, in the coming weeks that Ahab and his wife Jezebel are on the hunt for Elijah. They're looking for him. And God says, you need to get out of here. Go. Thanks for delivering the message. Now, now let's move, right? But I think God is doing so much more than that. God is sending Elijah, because he could have put him anywhere, but God sends him to a place where he has to be totally dependent upon the Lord. It's not an accident. God places him by a brook and says, there's going to be nobody there to feed you. You're not going to be able to make any money. You're going to live all alone by this brook. And here's what's going to happen. You're going to get water from the brook, and I'm going to bring you the food you need to survive. And kind of cool, I'm going to bring it at, you know, with ravens. They're going to drop it off, right? I think it's interesting to note, and as we make our way through this passage, I want us to see that God leads Elijah one step at a time. God is leading Elijah to go to this next place. Because he's got a purpose for that time, you know? And I think so often we want to know God's plans for us two or, or three or four or even 30 steps ahead, right? But God is usually quite content to reveal his plans one step at a time. He says, go talk to Ahab. Okay, go to talk to Ahab. Okay, after I do that, God says, okay, now I want you to go over to this brook. Now we're going to get into the rest of the story. We're going to see that God's going to move him all around, right? It might have been a more direct shot to just head north where he's going to end up in a few, right? But God has a work that he wants to do in Elijah by the brook. 
God is preparing Elijah for what's next in his time by the brook. And we need to trust God for each step. And like Elijah, we need to follow him obediently, right? You know, if we knew four or five steps ahead, what would be the temptation? If God said to you young people who are praying, for, I just can't wait to get married, and he said, oh, cool, well, actually, I have a wife picked out for you. She lives in Kansas. What would be the first thing you do? You'd be like, I'm, I'm heading to Kansas, you know? But God's like, no, 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 I got all this work I need to do in you here, and then I'm going to take you over here, and then over here, and over here. And all the while, he's building you into the type of person who's ready to meet this, this person from Kansas, right? We jump over all the steps. So we just need to be obedient to the step that God is calling to us right, you know, calling us to right now. Verse 5 says, So Elijah went, and he did according to the word of the Lord, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. It's kind of a cool, cool setup, really, you know? Bread and meat dropped off twice a day. Doesn't even have to work for it. That's pretty amazing. Um, I don't know. It doesn't say, did he have to cook it? I don't know. Was it pre-cooked? I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> that would be better, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't you agree? If it was like already marinated and dropped off, you know, that, that would probably be better. See, but while the, while the Israelites were experiencing God's punishment, right? Elijah was experiencing God's provision. It's the middle of a drought, and God is miraculously providing for Elijah's needs. But, verse 7 says, And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. The text doesn't say exactly how long he's been by this brook, you know, just depending on the Lord. But it does say that the brook dried up. Can you imagine what that would be like if you're Elijah? You know, every day, waking up and looking at the brook and noticing that the water line is getting just a little lower. Because he's dependent on this water for his survival, right? And the whole time he's like, God, what are you doing? What's going on here? The brook is getting lower and lower and lower. You know, I wonder if Elijah struggled the way that I sometimes do. I wonder if his eyes ever began to focus more on the depleting provision than on the one who had provided. I know for me, sometimes I find myself starting to rely on my blessings instead of relying on the one who has blessed me. And my eyes are on these things. It happened last night. Last night, you know, my, my son got hurt, and he's out in Chicago, and, and he calls his mom and dad and says, I don't know what to do, and we're, we're talking through this whole situation, and immediately my mind goes, well, you could go to emergency care, or you could um, go to, you know, buy some supplies at, at, at he, he got something stuck in his foot, by the way, so, he, and um, you could go try to buy, like, some, he, he's, he just moved into an apartment, he doesn't have anything, so it was like, you could buy some tweezers, and you could buy some alcohol, and some band-aids, and try to remove this thing out of your foot, so that's my mind. I, that's where I go. Because those are the blessings that I have at my disposal as an American, right? You can go to Walgreens. You can go to an emergency clinic. I can tell you where I didn't go. I didn't go to prayer for my son. You know? 
Because I'm looking at the blessings that exist instead of looking at the one who's blessed. You know? And it's just a small thing. My wife was far more faithful and spiritual than I am. She went to prayer. And she prayed for him. I didn't even know it. I went home up the phone and I, you know, a few minutes later she comes down. She said, I prayed for him. And he found something, you know, that he had that he could use like, you know, tweezers and he, he removed it. It's gone. I'm like, that's so cool. You know, a big chunk of little glass out of his foot. And I'm like, wow, that's so cool. Because she went to the provider instead of the provision. Make sense? Happened this morning. I came in here and I, started, I get migraines and I'm starting to have these ocular migraine sensations. And as soon as I'm starting to feel this, I'm like, oh no, how am I going to preach this morning without with a migraine? And so I start hunting around and I go to, hey, do you have Tylenol? Do you have any, anybody have any Excedrin for migraine? And I start looking, right? And I go up and I talk to my sister Vicky in the back and I said, do you have any Tylenol or an Excedrin? She said, I don't think so. She looks in her purse. She said, no, but let me pray for you. <laughs> I did it again. It's, it hasn't even been 24 hours. It hasn't even been 24 hours. And I'm looking for the provision Instead of the provider, and she prayed for me, and in the moment I was like, God's got this. You know? We do this. And so I wonder if Elijah looked at that brook and was like, oh no, God, what are you doing? Instead of saying, God, you got this. I don't know. I don't know what Elijah did, but I do know that God was certainly teaching Elijah something in a very powerful way that God is the one who provides. And if that brook dries up, I'll provide another way, you know? Verse 8 says, Then the word of the Lord came to him. After the brook had run dry, then the word of the Lord came. Verse 9, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and he went to Zarephath. God tells Elijah to now leave this place of provision And I want you to travel 80 plus miles to a Gentile town called Zarephath. And it's located uh, right along the Mediterranean Sea. Sounds delightful, right? He tells Elijah that when he gets there, there's going to be a widow who will feed him. Now you might be thinking that this sounds like a little bit of an upgrade, right? I mean, he's living by a dried up brook now and God says, got a nice spot for you over on the Mediterranean. Can you imagine the sunsets? I mean, they're going to be beautiful, right? But here's the thing. Zarephath, which is located in modern-day Lebanon, is just eight miles south of of Sidon. I told you to pay attention to a name earlier. Ethbal, remember, remember him? Sidon is the area that is controlled by Jezebel's father, Ethbal the king of the Sidonians. So God was literally leading Elijah into enemy territory. This is God flexing, right? God is totally flexing here. He's like, I, yeah, anybody maybe can protect you over by the brook with ravens and, 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 and water, like, psh, right? But check this out. I can take you into enemy territory, into the territory of the people who are hunting for you, and I can protect you there too. Pretty cool, right? He was going to experience God's protection and God's provision in a new and powerful way. 
You know, God is preparing Elijah for something big, right? And so he's got a lesson for him to learn by the brook. And now he's got a lesson for Elijah to learn up in Zarephath. And so verse 10 says, he arose and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a, wid- a widow was there gathering sticks. I have this picture in my mind because we, you know, when we go to Mexico, we see this. You see a lot of the, the older, it's usually the ladies in the community out gathering sticks, big bundles, and they actually suspend them from their head. And if you've seen pictures of it, it's, it's quite impressive. It, yeah, it, it looks like hard, hard, hard work. But this lady, she's out there, she's gathering sticks, and he called to her, Elijah calls her and says, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, which is pretty cool in and of itself, she's like, oh, okay, I'll get you some water. He called to her and he said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. God did tell him that the widow would feed him, right? So he's like, oh, no, no, no. Water's good, but bring me bread too, right? Because that's what God said. She's going to feed him. Verse 12. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I might go in and prepare it for myself and for my son that we may eat it and die. I mean, can you just feel the weight of, of, of desperation from this mother? You know, as a father, I just can't get my head around being in that place where, like, we're at the end of it. And, and my child is starving. And I'm making one last meal for us. And she says, as the Lord your God lives. And notice that she doesn't say, my God. She says, your God lives, as, as your God lives. Listen, I'm telling you the truth. I have nothing baked. I've got no food in my house to bring you. I only have a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And I'm out here gathering sticks right now so I can prepare a final meal for me and my son before we die. She is down to the bare bones. She's almost out. One meal away from starvation. And it's a funny thing, she doesn't, it's not that she doesn't want to help him, right? Like, she really does. She's like, oh, you want some water? I, I, I can get you some water. Got a little bit of that. Although it is a drought in the land, and so that's pretty impressive in and of itself that she was willing to give him some water. But she wants to help, but she just says, I, I, I can't. This is it. We're at the end. You know, and I read that, and my heart just... You know, my heart breaks for her, right? I mean, doesn't yours? Which is why verse 13 is so striking. Elijah said to her, Do not fear. It's a good start. Go and do as you have said. Okay, thanks. I'm going to go cook for me and my son. But first, make me a little cake of it. And bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. Whoa. <laughs> this is, a, this is, a, this is a, a big ask, right? What? Did you not hear what I just said? 
I mean, if, you, if, you, if you're like me, you read that and you're just like, man, Elijah, you have no idea what you're asking of this poor woman. But here's the thing. Elijah had experienced God's provision firsthand, right? He's been living at the hand of God's provision by that brook, right? And he knows the word that God has spoken to him. This widow is going to feed you. And so that same faith that brought Elijah before Ahab, right? The same faith that kept Elijah living before the Lord at that brook. That same faith gave Elijah the confidence to look at this widow and to ask her to take her own step of faith. Why? Because Elijah knew what God had spoken and he knew that God would provide. He had faith. He had faith. And so in verse 14, he asks her to take a step of faith. And he says these words. He says, For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour will not be spent, and the jug of oil will not empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Elijah tells her that if she takes this step of faith, she will see God's miraculous provision for her and her son. Elijah invites her to put her trust in the Lord. And in verse 15, says she went and she did as Elijah said. That was a big, big decision for her, wasn't it? It's no small thing that she's doing right now. She's going to go and she's going to take that flour. She's going to take that oil and she's going to make this bread for the prophet. whole thing reminds me of Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus was talking with his followers about their worries over food and clothing, right? And Jesus said in verse 31, Do not be anxious or worried, right? Saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus says if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these other things are going to be taken care of, right? Do we believe him? Do you really believe him on that? You know, I think the problem is, let's think about this, this, this morning. The problem is, I sometimes think I believe that he will provide that, but that's not enough. I want more than that. He promises to provide the very things that we need. I want him to provide the things that I want. You know? Are we content with him providing what we need? Elijah's challenge to this woman also touches on this whole biblical principle of giving God our first fruits. Give to God first of your time, your talents, your treasures. Give to Him first, right? But one of the questions that I have to wrestle with 
most often is whether I am giving God my best or am I giving God, you know, what's left, right? Do I give him the best of my time? Do I give him the best of my talents and and my treasures? Or am I just giving him what's left over at the end of a hard day? You know? Elijah challenges this widow to give to the Lord first and then watch how he provides. And she did. She did. And God provided for her son. He provided for her and he provided for Elijah again in a miraculous way. Pretty awesome story so far, right? Pretty amazing. But then in verse 17, tragedy strikes this woman's home. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And so sometime after this miraculous provision of the flour and oil, the widow's son became so sick that he died. And as you can imagine, this lady is devastated by the death of her child. Verse 18 says, she said to Elijah... What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. You know, immediately, immediately this woman assumes that her son's death is somehow connected to this man of God, Elijah. She assumes that God has sent Elijah there to punish her for some sin that's not named. Here in the text, whatever that sin may be. You know, I think a lot of us struggle with the sins of our past, don't we? And they're still like hanging there and and, and they're, they're haunting us. And every time something bad happens, I think we're tempted to say, oh, God's punishing me, right? A lot of people have this, this type of view of God. That God is somehow this angry tyrant who is just waiting to punish them for what they've done. There's people that that have no problem with the idea of of picturing God as a righteous judge. Oh, I can picture that. He's got the gavel in his hand and he's ready to pronounce judgment. He is a righteous judge. Absolutely. But they have a terribly difficult time picturing him as a loving father. Listen, if that's you... You need to know that God loves you. You know, we sing that song, He's a Good, Good Father. Not because it was such a great tune. It's fine. It's a fine tune. We sing it because it's true. He is a good father. He's a loving father. And you need to know that God loves you. He loves you so much that the punishment that you think He's waiting to pounce on you, He already poured it out on His Son. Right? He sent his son to die in our place. The Bible says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And the truth of the matter is that, yes, God does take sin very seriously. And yes, there are consequences for choices that we make. Right? We can't get around that. Yeah, there are consequences for the decisions that we make. 
Bible actually says that God disciplines those that he loves. So if you're getting disciplined by God, it's again, it's an act of his love because he wants what's best for you. But if you think that God is just sitting on the edge of his throne waiting for you to mess up so he can punish you for what you've done, if that's how you view him, you need to know that that is not how he describes himself in the pages of his word. He loves you. He loves you. And he wants to have a deep and meaningful relationship with you. I really appreciate the way that Elijah responds to her pain. Verse 19, it says, And he said to her, Yeah, it's all your fault. (laughs) Right? Is that what he said? No. He said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms. Clearly the child was small enough that the mother is carrying her her dead son. And he reaches out, he takes her dead son into into his arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Elijah takes the pain and the agony of this situation and he brings it directly to the Lord in prayer. He doesn't tell the woman it's because of her sin, but he also doesn't tell her it's not. He doesn't even answer that question, does he? He just enters into her pain with her. He doesn't know why the boy has died. And so immediately what he does is he goes to God in prayer. Immediately he goes to the Lord, the one who really does know what's going on. He says, God, what are you doing? God, what is going on here? Elijah goes to God. Because he knows that God is still in control. He's experienced it. He knows that God is in control. He can take care of us by the brook. He can take care of us with an unending supply of flour and oil. And he can take care of us in this situation right now. He knows what's going on. He understands it. And so Elijah goes to God. But he also knows that God has the power not only to take life, but to restore it. And i got to tell you, I think this is a pretty big and bold step of faith from Elijah. Verse 21 says, Then he stretched himself upon the child three times, making contact with this child. He said, Oh Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. Elijah's like, God, what are you doing? Is this from you or is this part of a bigger plan? I'm going to pray that you bring this boy back to life. And God did. God did it. And, And here's what makes this so amazing. This is the very first example in, in, in the scriptures of a resurrection. It's the very first time it's happened in the scriptures. And the fact that it has never happened before makes it an even even greater demonstration of Elijah's faith that he even thought to ask for it. Amen? I mean, that's amazing, right? And the fact that Elijah stretched himself over that dead body not once, not twice, three times 
praying for God to bring the boy back to life. It's an incredible testimony of Elijah's faith. You know that verse that we read in James? He prayed fervently. You know, how many times do we pray for something and we're like, oh yeah, I prayed for that, it didn't happen. Do you pray with the fervency in connection with God's word and his will like Elijah? Powerful. And what an incredible moment that must have been for Elijah. Can you imagine? <laughs> Boy starts breathing or coughing. I don't even know, but <laughs> I'm here. Wow! Like, the text doesn't say it, but it, you cannot, it cannot be like, oh good, he's awake. You know? <laughs> right? I mean, like, this is like, wow! Okay, I gotta get myself together here. Whew! Like, he must have been so excited. This is amazing. I just prayed and God, you. Okay, it's amazing. Verse 23. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. What an amazing gift, right? What an amazing God. As we bring our time together to a close, I just want to point out that this woman had already seen and experienced the power of God in a miraculous way, hadn't she? She saw how God provided for her and her son and Elijah with this flour and oil that just every day it's still there. It's still there. It's still there. And so she had seen the miraculous hand of God in her life. And I think a lot of times you hear people say, well, if I could just see a miracle, if I could just see that then, then I'd believe. It didn't convince her completely, did it? Even though every day it's like, oh, more flour, more oil. And you start to take that thing for granted, don't you? It wasn't until Elijah brought forth her resurrected son that she declared, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth is truth. Brothers and sisters, the, the, the resurrection of her son changed everything for this woman. But you and I both know that the scriptures tell us that there is a, another son who was resurrected. Amen? Jesus, the son not of this, this woman from Zarephath. No, Jesus, the Son of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul said, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins accordance with the Scriptures. And that He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. You know, many people were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus, His, his disciples and and many others, and it changed everything for them. They could not deny what they had seen. They were so convinced of Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection that many of them themselves were killed for defending the truth of his resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most significant event in all of human history. And it's an event that changes everything Everything for those who believe. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord 
and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be saved. Do you believe that? The resurrection of God's son changes everything. And so here's the thing. If you're here today and and you have questions uh, about the faith, you have questions about Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection, if you have questions about, about his love and forgiveness, or maybe you don't see God the way that, that, that I described earlier, I just want to invite you, would you, would you please, in the same way that, that Elijah invited this woman to take a step of faith, I'm inviting you to take a step of faith, and would you just be bold enough to come up and, and talk with me, or talk with Pastor Ross, or Pastor Henry, talk with some other friend here you know, who you know is a believer, Tell him you have questions. Ask him for prayer. But would you be bold enough to do that? We want to talk with you. We want to pray with you. And finally, I just want to close our time the way that we began. The way that we began. Because as you can see, you know, we read through this story, right, about Elijah. And it's easy. It is so easy for us to, to get this sort of larger-than-life view of the man. Are you, are, you, are you there? Are you with me? You look at Elijah and I'm like, wow, amazing. We're just getting started, by the way. You're like, wait till next week. It, it just keeps like going. But I just want to remind us of what James wrote in, in James chapter 5. He said, Elijah was a man, right, with a nature like us. Elijah was a man just like us. And that should be encouraging to you, right? I mean, does that not make you excited to think like, wow, if God did that through Elijah, I wonder what he wants to do through me. Makes me excited. Elijah didn't have superpowers, did he? He was connected to the all-powerful God. And that is what made all the difference. Amen? Amen. Next week, we're going to continue our study. We're going to look at chapter 18. And like I said... It just gets better. So I hope you'll be here with us. And if you want, read ahead and and, uh, take a look, take a sneak peek ahead at what's coming. It's really good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you so much for this time. Thank you for your word. the, The fact that you cared enough to lead people to write these things down. And now, thousands of years later, we're reading about these incredible ways that you moved in Elijah's life. Thank you so much for that. And I thank you that, that when I read that and I'm blown away by all that you did through Elijah's life, that you also put it on the heart of your servant James to write that Elijah was just a man. Because I'm just a man. And, and these are just men and women in front of me. But God, we have the ability to be connected to you, the all-powerful God of the universe. And there is nothing that you can't do. Nothing. And so God, we just pray that, that you will take these words and that you will, you will do a work in our hearts and our lives to make us more yielded to you, more available to you, more trusting in you, and help us to live a life of faith like Elijah. We pray these things in the powerful name of your son Jesus, our Savior. Amen.